You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. Please find a Bible and turn to uh, Revelation uh, chapter 2. I'm going to read God's Word here together. I'm going to pray, and then we will uh, jump in and begin at Revelation 2, uh, verse 12. But again, I want to read God's Word first. So let's get a copy of that in front of you. And uh, I hope you're already so encouraged that you came to church uh, this evening to worship our God together. Revelation 2, verse 12. You there? You there? You there? All right, here we go. Ready? Um, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, uh, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, Jesus speaking. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, And you did not deny my faith, even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, notice where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Verse 16, therefore repent, and notice here the condition, if not, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. As every letter ends in this way, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, and each letter ends with a different portion, but these are so great here. It says, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows it except the one who receives it. All right, loved ones, let's pray uh, together right now as we begin to get into the the Word of God. Uh, Father in heaven, I pray that even now as we uh, gather, we are aware of our lives, we are aware of our community, we are aware of our nation, we are aware um, of this world. And I pray right now, Lord, our hearts are heavy, and I do pray, Lord, that our eyes are wide open to the reality, Lord, of the instability of this world, and we think primarily um, of the nation of France and the city of Paris right now, and the um, devastation, the fear, um, the horror of the things that have taken place, and these kind of things, Lord, that continue to take place across our world, whether in Africa or Europe or are here as well, and we do pray in the name of Jesus Christ, O Lord, that light will shine amidst this dark world, and we do pray so much, O God, that the gospel would be heard um, louder than ever in the midst of so many asking, I pray, real questions. Lord, would you comfort, would you comfort uh, this nation of France and the people there? But I pray, and we all pray together, O God, that you would use this as an opportunity for people to know the truth, and the truth might set them free. Amen, church? We ask that. We ask that, Lord, that only you, only you are the one that we can look to. Nothing else makes sense. And we'll see that again uh, right now, oh God. But we just pray, again, help us to wake up. Help us to see. Help us to have a little faster heartbeat right now. Again, another reason, another reason to not live for the world. Another reason to look up with eyes wide open to the reality attorneys coming. So Another reason, loved ones, we are here before God to say you are, you are showing us again the world doesn't work. The systems of man don't work. Jesus Christ works. 
And so give us more boldness by your Holy Spirit and cause us, Lord, to sense, yes, that there is such an urgency, there is such an opportunity, and whether that nation's so far away, and yet, Lord, this world's so connected like never before. And I pray, Lord, you would use it as only you can. Just help us, give us wisdom, Lord. We're not smart enough, we're not strong enough, but our God is awesome, and you are enough. And so we look to you now again, Lord. We take the time to seek you because we need you. And I just, I just pray so much, Lord. We are all in our own ways, small or big. We are, we are, we are seeing more clearly, loving more dearly, and just, and just focusing so much on that which matters. Unify this church in that way, I pray right now, Lord. Give us that. Give us that sober-mindedness. Give us that clarity. Give us the love, Lord, for the loss that is so needed in these days as much as ever. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. Revelation 2, verses 12 to 17 today, and we continue in our series, A Word for the Church. A word for the church, man. It is a word for the church. It's a word uh, now. And so far in this series, we have seen um, a letter or a word uh, for the love lacking the church in Ephesus. We saw last week a letter or a word to those who are suffering. That's the church in Smyrna. And now today we read a letter or a word uh, to the faithful in the church of Pergamum. Now a letter or uh, a word to the, to the faithful, let me just add this, sort of. Uh, a letter to the sort of faithful. A letter to the faithful kind of. Uh, a letter to the faithful just about, uh, maybe halfway, 50%, that might be gracious. A letter to the faithful, listen, um, sort of, okay? And today as we look into the church of Pergamum, we're going to see a church that had lots of good things. We're going to see a church that had some bad things, but we'll also see a church that definitely uh, had hope. And Jesus brings a word, his word, into this church in the city of Pergamum. He brings a word into this church, into the town of Oakville. And we're going to find out here tonight, it's a varied word. Uh, there's a part, it's an encouraging word. There's a tough word. Um, there's an inspiring word. Now, isn't, isn't this just like our Savior? I love it so much. Um, our Savior brings a word, a word that he decides is the one that we need. And if we'll be honest, sometimes we want the word that's encouraging all the time. And we want the word where it just comes up and makes us feel good about where we are. But Jesus knows the true definition of love. And the true definition of love is grace and truth. And Jesus is full of grace and truth. And so he brings a word to the church then and to the church now. A word that will encourage us, yes. A word that will inspire us, yes. But a word that will convict us, yes. A word that will rebuke us, yes. Because Jesus loves us too much to not tell us what is true. And so he brings his word to the church in Pergamum again, and it's going to be a word of commendation, but it's also going to be a word of conviction. And there's a hard word here. In fact, to the point he says, um, if you don't repent, I'm coming with the sharpness of the sword of my mouth. That's judgment. That's not second coming in this context. That's like to the church now. Jesus is serious about the purity and the true love upon his church. He's got a word. So let's get to that word, verse 12. Uh, the word starts with this. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write. We'd like to learn a little bit about each city that we're traveling to within the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation. Uh, Pergamum was the capital city of this province. The province being Asia Minor, this region, the capital city. It had been the capital, this is important, for over 300 years. It was a city particularly noted for culture, and education. 
It actually a bolstered of one of the grandest libraries in the ancient world. Apparently it had some 200,000 volumes within it. Again, a big deal back then. Pergamum was also a, a very religious city. It had temples dedicated to the Greek and Roman gods. And just like Smyrna, we learned this last week, it had specific temples dedicated to the worship of the Roman emperor. So last week we learned that the city of Smyrna won the privilege of being the first city in this province to dedicate a temple of worship to Tiberius Caesar. But 50 years before that, the city of Pergamum, they won, the, they had contests for these things. They won the privilege of being the first city to build a temple of worship to Caesar Augustus. Okay? These were temples dedicated to the worship of man. Okay? Again, again, very difficult context to be a believer of Jesus Christ. Okay? If you wanted to be lukewarm and you wanted to sell out and you wanted to have it easy, that's a different story. But if you're going for Jesus Christ and you desire to be used by him and you're in Smyrna or you're in Pergamum, loved ones, it's tough. Okay? So before we start saying, woe is me, and the country of Canada and the province of Ontario and the city of Oakville, it's hard to be a Christian now. Let's first wake up and smell some history. All right? And as we wake up and smell some history, we realize, wow, man, there's some people who've been before us, and they've been through a lot. They didn't get to do this kind of thing that we're doing right now. So we say, thank you, God. Humble us, Lord, and let us understand just how good we have it and how much people before us have gone through. So we like to do maps in this series, amen? We like to do maps. We like to do maps. Each week we've done a map. Got a new map this week. Give me an M. Give me an A. Give me a P. Not so much. All right, here's the map. Here's the map. Right here we go. I want you to see the province of Asia Minor here again. We're just a little bit, um, we're, we're backed off now. We used to be just in this map area. But I just want you to see this is the region that we're addressing right now. And so we've seen Ephesus and we've seen Smyrna, and now we're going up to Pergamum. It's really going to do a full, full circle and come back here, okay? So this is where we are right now, a little more inland from these two ports before. And here's Pergamum, again, the city of culture and education, the city of idolatrous worship to the Roman Empire, and the city that we learn about right now and the word that Jesus has for them. So into this situation, this church in Pergamum comes a word from Jesus. What kind of word? We have four aspects of this word we're going to focus on tonight together from Jesus. Number one is this. Um, Jesus brings a word that will cut like a sword. He brings a word that will cut like a sword. If you look at verse 12, it says, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now that's very interesting phrase, isn't it? That Jesus now, again, claims the title for himself. And Revelation 1 verse 16, Jesus is also described, it says, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Chapter 1, Revelation. Chapter 19 in Revelation, it says this, Jesus in coming judgment from his mouth, that amazing scene in Revelation 19, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. So we take that Revelation 2. Revelation 2 has two times where the same thing is kind of said. From the mouth of Jesus comes a sharp two-edged sword. Three truths here as we understand this phrase in chapter 12 or chapter 2 verse 12. Three truths. What does this mean? This is the word of Jesus. This is the word of God. This is the word of judgment as well. It's word of Jesus, but the, but the words of Jesus are the word of God. And we see specifically in our context here, it's also um, a very serious word of judgment. 
if you have any questions about that, look at chapter 2 and look at verse 16, okay? Uh, Jesus says, therefore repent, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them, the church at Pergamum, the false teachers, with the sword of my mouth, okay? So just stop along, time out for a second, stop long enough. Consider how seriously Jesus takes his truth, the truth of his word. Consider how seriously he treats the words from his mouth, the truth of God. It is sharp as a sword. At the end of time, it will ultimately be his truth that judges. From his mouth, the nations will be judged. The church at Pergamum here was about to be confronted by the word of God from the words of Jesus Christ and it will cut, listen, it will cut like no other. It is so sharp. The words of Jesus are so sharp, sharp as a two-edged sword. So growing up, I remember um, my parents from time to time, they would get a, a really sharp knife for the kitchen. Remember these knives that they boast of, like the sharpest knife, sharpest knife in the history of the world? Remember those, remember those knives? They didn't say it that way exactly, but something like that, right? It's so sharp, it can cut anything. It can cut through a steel pipe, or, you know, you just kind of touch. And I used to, as a kid, I went up, and I'd get this knife and just kind of test it a little bit. Is it as sharp as they say? And you kind of rum, uh, uh, rub your thumb over that sometimes. Or once, um, my grandfather loved Swiss Army knives, and he gave me one when I was a child, old enough to have one, and a Swiss Army knife, and they just bolster the sharp, and you'd rub your finger so sharp. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? Just so sharp. Listen, you got to know this though. When you, when you hold God's word, it is sharp like a sword and you kind of rub your thumb. Ow, ow hurts. It hurts. It, it does spiritually. This thing is so sharp. The sharpness of the word of God. The sharpness of the words that come from the mouth of Jesus Christ. And listen, this word of Jesus in this context, it was specifically designed at this time to destroy idols. It was specifically designed to come into this environment of false teaching and to ruin, in a good way, sexual immorality and the sin that was ruining people's lives. It was specifically designed with sharpness to cut down false teachers and to get the church going in the right direction again. This is why Hebrews 4 verse 12 says that the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. And listen, it judges the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So every time God's word speaks, even now, surgery is happening. Every time Jesus speaks, he's coming in to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. He's doing that in Pergamum, and he's doing that here now as well. And why, this is, why is this so important? Because the church at Pergamum, they had... The world starting to seep in. Worldliness was starting to grab a foothold in the godliness that previously existed. Here's what we must see. This is a word that will cut like a sword. Remember this too, loved ones. The greatest weapon we have against the world is the word. The greatest weapon we have, you combine that with prayer and look out, is the word of Christ, okay? Remember, remember, this is, this is more than just a book. It's a good book. But it's a sword. It's the sword of the Spirit. Hey, you want to hold up your sword right now? Hold up your sword. Go ahead. Hold up your sword. Where's your sword? Where's your sword? Now, now keep it up for a second. Keep it up for a second. If you're holding an electronic Bible, it doesn't quite feel the same, does it? Does it? 
That's my chance. I can put it down now. I'm thinking, that's my chance to kind of put it in a job. It just feels good to have the book in the hand. And you've got an e-Bible, and it's a, a sword, I guess, but it's also a bunch of other things as well. And, and then I'll leave it there. Okay, I'll leave it there, all right? The sword, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, praying at all times. And so this is awesome. We are holding uh, God's uh, weapon of choice for the life of the church and believers, and we got to see it as such. So, so when, when the Bible's sitting on the shelf and collecting dust, man, it's not working very well, all right? That's not a good plan. When it sits there day after day and we kind of look at it for one day and then close it, man, our sword's going to go dull, but you, but you get the word that cuts like a sword in the words of Jesus Christ. It just, it's pretty exciting, isn't it? It's pretty exciting. Why don't you just turn to your neighbor and say, I'm holding a sword. Go ahead. I'm holding a sword, man. I'm holding a sword. And then you can say, be afraid. Be very afraid. No, no, no. No, no, no. But listen, listen, the first word of Jesus is this. I have a word that will cut like a sword. And here's point number two. We see this, we see this. We see a word of encouragement, though, now. A word of encouragement to the unswerving. So Jesus, he says, man, I have words that cut like a sword. Now I have a word, though, that's going to start with encouragement. So thankful for Jesus giving a, a word of encouragement. Look at verse 13. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Wow. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So this word of encouragement, here's how Jesus starts. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Isn't that something? So the city of Pergamum, according to Jesus, is known as the place where Satan's throne, Satan's throne is. So New York is called the, the Big Apple. Pergamum was basically Satan's throne. Hey, where do you live? Satan's throne. Really? Really? I mean, that, that's kind of the reputation it had. It was, it was that dark. It was, it was that evil. What Jesus means here is Pergamum was a hotbed for evil. Uh, it was a place that Satan made home. It was a stronghold of Satan's power. Have you ever traveled at times and you've kind of walked into a place or been in an environment and you just sense as a believer in Jesus Christ with the Holy Spirit, you're just like, this place feels dark. Ever happened to you? I remember, I remember when I first got saved and coming out of the lifestyle I used to live and the world I was in, and I was in this nightclub kind of bar thing because some friends wanted me to go. I remember sitting there, and the first time in a place regenerated with the power of the Holy Spirit, and God was alive in me, and I just this, this doesn't feel good. This doesn't seem right. This is dark right now. I don't, I don't want to particularly be here because everything within me was saying light and, and wanting Christ. Well, Pergamum had a reputation of being a place where Satan's throne dwelt. It had an environment that was so cultish and idolatrous that it would have been extremely difficult for a genuine believer to reside in. But I want you to see the encouragement that we gain from this as we look around at our decaying culture in many ways. What Jesus says, he says to the church, he says, hey, um, I know where you dwell. Now hear it, hear it the way he says it. So he says, um, he says, I know where you live, but not like in that way like someone scares you. I know where you live. I know where you don't know. He's like gently and beautifully, he says, I know where you dwell, children. I know where you live because there I live with you. He's saying, I know it's tough in Pergamum. I know it's difficult to serve me. I know the persecution is real. I know that your lives are threatened for being faithful to me. 
You're here right now, and I love these words when Christ gives them to us. They're so, you're here right now, and you're like, my home is so tough. Jesus says to you, okay, again, this is, this is you one-on-one. He says, I know where you live. I know your home's tough. Uh, some of us as students, and we're going to school, and the environments are just so tough, and the professors, they come down on us, and the different places where we feel, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not fitting in, and people are ostracizing me because I'm not like them, and I want to, Jesus says, hey, listen, my child, I know where you go to school. I am with you when you go to school. For some of us, um, um, again, um, our workplaces, very difficult, the anxiety, I talk to you, the stress, the pressure, Jesus says, I know where you work. I know where you dwell because there again I dwell with you. Loved ones, hear this. Right? Jesus says this to you again. You, 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 me. He says, I know, I know. I know it's tough. But I have promised that wherever you go, I will be with you as well. And he says this, I know where you dwell. Here comes the commendation. Look at verse 13 again. Um, you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. I would circle my in my name, I would circle my, if you want to do that, my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, look at my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. My name, my faith, my faithful witness. Notice this about the church of Jesus Christ. Notice that everything about the church of Jesus Christ is about Jesus Christ. Notice that everything in the, in the church of Jesus Christ belongs to Jesus Christ, okay? This inspires faithfulness in me because if this was about you and me, I quit, all right? If, if, if we're the reason, if this is about us, I quit. But we hold to the name of Jesus Christ. We do not deny his faith. I find myself saying this more than ever, a phrase something like this, man, man I'm so glad I'm not in charge, because if I was in charge, man, I couldn't bear that weight. But this isn't my faith or your faith ultimately. This is the faith of Jesus Christ in us. This is the name of Jesus Christ that he has blessed us with. We are his witnesses. We belong to him. This, loved ones, is the only true path of faithfulness and perseverance. This is the only path to true glory. His name, his faith, and we being witnesses of him. Many in the church of Pergamum knew this. They were living this. And despite the hostility, they were holding on. And even we find out to the point of death. Because in verse 13, we see reference to Antipas, who was killed among you for his, his resolve and his desire to pursue the faith that he's found in Jesus Christ. Now, we don't know anything about Antipas beyond this verse. And really what he becomes here, he's an anonymous hero in scripture, because no other historical document makes mention of him. But what I love about Antipas here is, is hear this too, he might be unknown throughout history. Here, here, here. He is not unknown to Christ. Okay? Again, receive that truth. So many times we think, I'm, 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 I'm not known, I'm on my own, I'm so lonely, no one sees, Jesus sees. Jesus sees, he knows, and he gives Antipas the title faithful witness, the same title Christ had for himself in Revelation 1 verse 5. That's awesome. How powerful then to think that Antipas in this difficult and dark environment of suffering, but there's Jesus Christ as Lord, seeing every move, knowing every pain, loving him to the end. And I love, I love to imagine about Antipas here and his faithfulness to his Lord. 
I love to imagine as he dies for um, his allegiance to Jesus Christ, his faith in Jesus Christ, and he enters into glory, and there is Christ welcoming him, and Jesus Christ says, well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Again, the moment, the moment, the glory of that moment, the joy, the amazing treasure to understand this word of encouragement. Hey, hey, church, hey, church, Antipas made it. He died, but he made it. And now you are to be faithful in the same way. Faithful and unswerving, but how? But how? Listen, listen. By his name, by his faith, because we're his witnesses. You see that? It's the grace of the gospel that is found there again. And this is why the author of Hebrews commands us to run the race with endurance, looking, looking, looking to the author and perfecter of our faith, which of course is Jesus Christ, the word of encouragement that those who would not swerve in their faith, these were the ones to be found faithful because they were focusing so much on Jesus Christ and all that he is. So we see here a word that is sharp and cuts like a sword, a word that was encouraging to those who were remaining and faithful. Now point three, we, we see this. We see now a, a word of rebuke now to those who are straying. So the encouragement, the commendation finishes, in a sense, And now a difficult word comes. Look at verse 14 now. Jesus says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Okay, so this is where we find a letter to the faithful sort of, right? Because here's where things begin to change a little bit. Among those who were faithful in Pergamum, there were others who were false in their teaching. Specifically, notice what's mentioned in verse 14. The people, there were some, some people, it says, some people in the church were holding to the teaching of Balaam. Now, the story of Balaam occurs in Numbers 22 and 24 and does spill over into Numbers 25 as well. Balaam was a legitimate prophet of God with an illegitimate heart for God. Balaam was asked by the king of Moab, who was Balak. Balak asked Balaam to curse the people of God. He said, Balaam, I want you to curse Israel. Now, Balaam had enough wisdom to not curse the people of Israel, but he wasn't wise enough to just leave it at that and honor the Lord. If you read Numbers 22 and 24, it seems like Balaam's doing the right thing. If you look at it kind of on first glance, you're like, well, he seems to honor. He's going back and forth. He does seem to receive some money for profit for hire. That can't be very good. But he seems like he won't curse them. And he's trying, I can't do unless what the Lord's told me to do. But what we learn in other places in Scripture as well, what Balaam did do, he says, I won't curse them, but I'll give you a plan, Balak. And here's the plan. And verse 14 tells us, he put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. Now, what was his plan to the king of Moab to cause the Israelites to stumble. It was this. Hey, listen, get all the Moabite women, get them to intersperse with the Israelite men and give it enough time and the Moabite women will corrupt and harden the hearts of the Israelite men. And sure enough, the Moabite women kind of go in. They find their way in. The worldliness gets in amidst the godliness. A little leaven begins to leaven the whole lump. Sexual immorality starts to take place. And God begins to get very, very upset. Numbers 31 verse 16 confirms this story. It says this. It says, Behold, these on Balaam's advice 
caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague, in this plague, 24,000 people died. This plague came among the congregation of the Lord because of Balaam's advice. And again, Balaam's advice was get the worldliness to seep in amongst the godliness and God's people will begin to get ruined. This is how this relates in Balaam's teaching to the church at Pergamum now. If you mesh the ways of the world with the ways of the church, if you begin to relax on sin, if you start to redefine what God's word says, if you just say it's no big deal all the time, oh, that's not so serious, and sin starts to enter into the camp, that's when Jesus begins to get very upset. And in the case of Pergamum, there was excessive idolatry coming in and rampant sexual immorality. The spirit of Rome was starting to grieve the spirit of God. And Jesus was taking that very seriously. In fact, you could say the teachers that were named in this teaching of Baal, look at verse 15. He says, it's the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans, it says right there, you have some holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, these guys came up in the letter to Ephesus, if you might recall, and they were uh, a heretical sect that really loved uh, their sexual immorality, and commentators suspect they taught a form of grace that was kind of like sin at will. They, they held grace so high and kind of um, a non-law kind of environment that, that just sin, do whatever you want, sin at will, and everything will work out okay. Of course, that's not what the Bible teaches at all. And it's regarding the Nicolaitans. You know what Jesus says? Look at chapter 2, verse 6. Chapter 2, verse 6 in the letter to Ephesus. He says, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. Notice this too, which I also hate. You know, um, often we want to weaken such language. But Jesus does not. Jesus takes so seriously here the intrusion of worldliness has no place within genuine godliness. What I want to do right now, I want to take just like three important principles from this section right here of these fascinating verses that we need to apply. They'll be on the screen for you here right now. Uh, the first principle is this, is what we're learning right now from the church at Pergamum and the words of Christ. Uh, first of all, the church must separate from the world. The church must, or must be, let's say, the church must be separate from the world. Now, notice what Jesus is most upset with. The attempt to blend worldliness and godliness. I mean, he literally says, I hate that. And in this case, it's idolatry with sexual immorality. How seriously Jesus takes this. Now, now, if we apply this in our nation right now, we can go back over history again. And entire denominations began by... Um, putting doubt upon God's word, Satan comes in, did God really say, we learned that in our previous series, and he comes in casting doubt, and then all of a sudden, well, is that really a sin? Well, let's just start here, and let's just get these people in, and, and let's just condone this style and this behavior, because the rest of the culture is doing that. But again, if that starts to seep in, and then now you have entire denominations where 75 years ago, robust theology, rocking it for the gospel, literally have zero input for Jesus Christ in the gospel at all. Nothing. They are, they are dead corpses with nothing going on because the worldliness started to seep in. And see, in, in our day, the temptation in this context too, it's the, 
people who try to excuse um, unbiblical divorce um, or rationalizing adultery. We see this all the time. Or um, trivializing fornication. It's not that big a deal. It's a big deal to Jesus. And we're seeing that here right now. Um, other forms of uh, the church starts to permit um, assistance and teaching that are flat out um, idolatrous according to the world. Now these things might attract a crowd, but listen, they will also attract the sword of Jesus, which is coming in verse 16. Okay, like this is where, the, these are not my words. I'm just teaching what God has said through his son, Jesus Christ, uh, written to John by the Holy Spirit that we have right now. Jesus is serious about these things. The ways of the world have no place within the ways of the church, okay? I'll get to the balance of this in just a second, but look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, right? Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's clear to me. That's clear to me. Do not love the world or the things... If, we, if, if we're about the world and love the world, then the love of the Father is not in us. Notice this in our text too. And I got help from a commentary this week. I love it though. Notice Satan's first attempt is violence. Let's kill Antipas. Notice his second strategy is not violence, but alliance. Alliance. You see that? If, if I can't defeat you by killing you, then I'll come in and just try to get you to join me. And just, just come on over here. Just subtly start to move over towards the things of the world. Just, just come on over and let's be friends and cuddle up with sin. And we'll just downplay it. Everything will be okay. It's okay if I, if I separate from my wife. There's no reason. But it's okay if I start to engage in all this. It's okay if I just have idols in my life and go to church. And those are the lies that begin to break down an individual, a family, a church, a leadership, a movement uh, for God. Right? And so the question I have right now, ask ourselves, listen, listen, all of us, where is Satan right now trying to suck us into the systems of the world? Where are we being tempted to compromise? I mean, just take an inventory right now. Where you are, I gotta do the same. What are the things in my life that he's trying to gain an alliance with me that I'm starting to diminish the priority and importance of truth in the gospel of what God has called me to the church must be separate from the world okay so we love the world we love the world we love the world we love the world the truth of jesus christ we love our neighbors we love the lost but we don't become the world right and that's what's so important but we love the world in the sense of loving them with the love of jesus christ uh, principle number two which will be quick is this discernment is desperately needed what's amazing to me about jesus word here to all these churches like, if you think about the word that Jesus is bringing to Pergamum and the other six churches, it's this. It's really, wake up. <laughs> He's like, listen up, man. Every letter, listen with those who have ears to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So many believers in churches are vulnerable because they lack wisdom. And the reason we lack wisdom is because we lack the truth. We cannot win with the world. You see what Jesus is doing here? Jesus is saying, I bring you a word. I bring you a word by bringing you to me. I bring you this word, and this word says, come and be so close to me. Get away from the sin and let me draw you to myself where true rest and peace is, where true love is. But discernment is so needed. And we're built up in the truth. This is why the word comes. I want to give you wisdom. I want to give you discernment. 
Here's my book. Here's my life. Here's my love. Discernment. Avoid the things that will bring you down. Men, men, wake up. Men, wake up. Men, come on. Children, wake up. Women, wake up. Wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. So important right now. Notice, notice, the church must be separate from the world. Discernment is desperately needed. And the third principle right here is Jesus is at war with false teaching. And you're saying, well, that's pretty strong. Yeah, but look at verse 16. Jesus says, therefore repent. If this doesn't happen, if not, I will come to you soon and war against that, them false teachers. Those teaching Balaam's teaching. Um, those ones that are part of the nickel. I will war against them, he says, with the sword of my mouth. How seriously did Jesus take sound doctrine? Very. How seriously did Jesus take false teaching? Very. And this is why every true and healthy church will be on guard against false teaching. Every true and healthy church will be aware that wolves are always trying to get in. I mean, we don't know right now, man. There could be wolves sitting in this place right now. I mean, the probability is there are a few people here with the wrong intentions, okay? So I'm not asking to look around and try to find the wolf, okay? Uh, I'm not trying to do that, but, but, but be aware as elders and leaders, it's, it has happened and it will happen. And this is why any true and healthy church has a leadership, has an eldership that has the courage to go after those who are trying to break the unity and the purity of the body of Christ in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's hard to do at times. And people get upset and people get offended, but this is protecting the flock. This, Jesus says, you repent, you root out the false teaching. If not, I will come and I'll do it. Now, what does Jesus mean when he comes? He's going to make war with the sword of his mouth. I don't honestly know what that looks like. I can tell you this, it's not good. And if Jesus makes war, he's going to win. Again, this isn't second coming. He's not saying at the end, not in this context. That's later on. In this context, he's not talking about second coming. He's talking about disciplining the church now. He makes war with the with the sword of his mouth. So this is the word that Jesus is bringing. It's a, it's a tough one. It cuts like a sword. It's an encouragement to the unswerving. It's a, it's a word of rebuke to those who are, are straying. But here's the fourth word. I'm glad it ends here too because I, I, love, I love this verse, verse 17. I mean, but here's the promise, or here's the, here's the word. It's a, it's a word of promise to those who conquer. A word of promise to those who conquer. So look at verse 17. Verse 17 says, uh, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I love that God's Spirit's talking right now. I love that I don't have to do it. I love that he does it. It says, to the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna. That's so exciting. And I will give him a white stone. That's also exciting. This is probably most exciting. With a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. You got some questions? So do I. Let's try to get some answers, okay? Now, I must admit, I love these final exhortations because they're so powerful. Each letter ends with an exhortation like this. Notice, to the one who does not succumb to false teaching, to the one who fights in purity by God's grace, Jesus says, they conquer. In other words, another translation, they, they, they overcome. So who is the one who overcomes? The one who overcomes is the one who clings to Christ. It's the one who loves his truth. It's the one who endures persecution. It's the one who refuses to be deterred within trial. It's the one who withstands the assault of the enemy. And if you're like me and you hear all of those, you can say, well, 
can I do that? And the answer is really no, but in Christ we can because what Christ has done in us, because he conquers for us, we become more than conquerors, and then we have the grace and the strength and the, and the, and the choice to rest in his strength to see ourselves as overcomers as we cling to Christ, as we love his truth, as we choose to endure persecution, as we refuse to be deterred within trial, as we withstand against the assault of the enemy and the one who conquers i want you to see this in the text here too the one who conquers is in the singular okay so this is a letter to the churches but jesus right now says and the one who conquers so so this is individual right now so again jesus talking to you and to you and to you and to you and so listen this is where the power is i i can't make your decision for you this is, this is you in Christ. The power is, though, when each person, lovers, I want you to see this. This is such a great vision for our church. I love it. When, when, when you as an individual are resolved by God's grace and strength to pursue him, and you're going to let the tragedy in Paris awaken you to a greater desire for eternity as opposed to the, to the temporal nature of what moth and rust destroy. That's your choice. I can exhort you, I can call you, we can pray for each other, but you have to make that choice before God. I'm living for you. But the exciting part is, is when you decide that, and next person decides that, and you decide, and imagine if, if a whole row begins to decide to go hard after the Lord and love him. I, I like the chances of this row right here. Like, like I, I, really, I really like what's going to happen. But then if all of a sudden this section all decide to do that, man, this section, like, I want to preach to you guys a lot, okay? Because you're going to give such good vibes what God is doing. And imagine this entire aisle here uh, was, was fired for Christ. And then it spreads, it spreads to all, like, what's going to happen there? I don't know, but it's going to be good. It's going to be good, too. To the one who overcomes by the strength of God and by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ provided for us in the gospel. This, this is when things start to get very, very exciting. But listen, you can't do that for me. And I can't do that for you. We can pray for each other, love each other, help each other. But at the end of the day, it's in, an individual decision coming as a community, as a whole, where the power of God is seen that is so exciting. He says to the one who conquers, he says, I will give uh, some of the hidden manna, Okay? hidden manna we think of manna we think of the wilderness we think of the israelites we think of god's daily provision the hidden manna is the provision of jesus christ as the bread of life the bread of heaven i believe this is this is saying this life's going to be tough fighting against evil it's going to cost you a lot antipas found that out but jesus says right here i think he says but my child when you need it most i will feed you i will feed you with hidden manna in other words, a, a manna that the world will not see, but you will know where it comes from. See, loved ones, loved ones, don't feed on the world, feed on the word. Don't feed on what the world provides, feed on what the word provides, the manna of Christ. The promise of Christ is to, is to sustain us, provide for us, to grace us with his strength and grace. Jesus right now, hear this, Jesus promises you his provision his provision, listen, of what? Of himself, okay? I gotta, I gotta confess this. If, if, if you weren't here last night for the gathering led by Bob Coughlin, sorry, you missed out, okay? You missed out. Not trying to guilt you, just trying to encourage you to come back next time, all right? But I am here, and I'm, I'm, I'm constantly in this place, as are you, where I can't do this apart from the Lord. And I am there last night, and, 
And I'm sitting there beside my wife, best date night ever, by the way, all right? It really was. And I'm sitting there with my wife, and, and the Lord, he just, he just meets us. And we sing these songs of the gospel and the reality of all of our sin, but all of his grace and all of his love. And I'm just sitting there, and the Lord just overwhelms me with what? With himself. With himself. And I just, just standing there or sitting there and just, there is nothing that tastes as good as the Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing like the hidden manna that sustains you. I mean, you just kind of, I woke up this morning and forgive my expression, but I just felt like I still had a Holy Spirit buzz. You know what I'm saying? Like it just, I just, I, I, just, I literally sense, I sense the peace and the grace and the love of God with, uh, walking with me and sustaining me. And here's, I pray you know what I'm talking about. I pray you know what it's like to have the sustaining power and the grace of God come upon you and to, fill you and to bless you. I pray that you have shed tears recently of love and joy because of all that Christ has done and is in your life. And if you don't know, beg him and ask him because this is the hidden manna. This is the hidden manna. When everything else is falling apart and you're at your end and you can't make it, he comes up and he's like, no one else sees. And he says, my child, I feed you with myself. And you are there and you are sustained and you are encouraged and you rise to your feet again and you say, I'm going to keep going because it's not me, it's him and me. And this is the reality of what it means to follow him and love him. This is the hidden man. It's so beautiful. To the one who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. And then notice the final part of verse 17, and I'll be done. Watch this. He says, and I will give him a white stone. A white stone. Now, a white stone, there's, there's a lot of discussion about this. It's kind of fun. But the best explanation seems to be that the Romans, when an athlete won um, a sporting event or an athletic contest, they would hand the winner a white stone. And often that white stone would have their name written on it. And this white stone, as the victor, would allow them to gain entrance to the banquet that was coming where the awards would be handed out. The other explanation is in Roman times, jurors would hand a white stone to those who have been acquitted from whatever they were accused of and they were set free. Regardless, both explanations work for me, amen? Both explanations as children of God, listen, listen, in Jesus Christ, he has conquered that we can be called conquerors. And what happens here? This is the gospel right here, man, verse 17. It's so exciting, right? What he's saying to us right here, he's saying, listen, because of your faith in me, my faith, my name, you are my witness, saved by grace through faith. Not because what you have done. I'll say it again. If you're here right now and you think your works save you, you are believing a lie. You can't get into heaven because sin doesn't get into heaven. Only perfection does and only we are made perfect by Jesus Christ, by the works that he has done. And when someone says, Jesus Christ, I believe in you for the forgiveness of my sins, Jesus says, you will overcome. You will make it. You will be given hidden manna and you will be presented with a white stone. You will have your name written on it and this guarantees you're going to the banquet, man. It's gonna be a good feast. This guarantees you will eat because you will be saved forever. And then it says here too, and I understand, that you've been justified, you've been declared innocent, and so the juror again hands you the white stone. You are set free, you can live the grace that is upon your life. The white stone, love it so much. And then it finally says, a new name written on the stone that no one knows it except the one who receives it. What does that mean? I believe it means this. Notice 
the expectancy of our Savior towards us. He's like, you're a conqueror, you overcome. He's like, just you wait, man. You're gonna wait stone and you're gonna receive it and you're gonna find me waiting for you. You're gonna find the intimacy. There's expectancy here. There's intimacy too from our Savior. So, so powerful as well. Your name will be written on this stone as an indication of how much Jesus Christ loves you and a new name. What is that gonna be? Again, I'm not totally sure, but it's gonna be really good. Hey, hey, this just in, uh, Jesus loves you. And he proves this with a hidden manna. He proves this with a white stone. And he proves this with a new name. And when that all comes to fruition and you are there in glory, even as we heard tonight, that will be such an incredible, incredible time. Loved ones, listen to the truth. Hold to his name. Fight against false teaching. Repent of our sin. Love our Savior. And see what he does within our lives. And of course, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay? Last thing. Last thing. This morning I turned on the TV ever so briefly. I just wanted to get an update with Paris. And I turned it on. Literally, it was for about 30 seconds at that time. There's a reporter there. And she was commenting on some things that, that, that had happened. And she says, oh, I just, there's a, a grand piano that was rolled out. And they rolled it out into the street as a source of encouragement. And she said, and the person just began to play the song Imagine by John Lennon. You know, that just hit me a lot. If you know the song Imagine by John Lennon, and I just re- recalled the words today. And when our world undergoes such tragedy, and when there's such horror, the world is searching for answers. And this guy on the grand piano, his answer, and this is, this is so typical of our world right now in the midst of what cannot be explained to them, the words of this song say, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Second verse, imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion to. Imagine all the people living life in peace. And he says, and you can say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. Consider joining us and the world will be one. Now, in one sense, you kind of hear that. You go, oh, I guess that's, you know, you can say, well, that's kind of nice, but, but it's, it's just false. The world's solution, the world's solution more than ever to the things that are most important is denial and unbelief. It just, it doesn't exist. It, it doesn't happen. Listen, listen, our solution, our solution is faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay? He's the one who makes sense of everything. Our hope is found in Christ alone. Christ alone is the one who makes everything. Again, in the midst of the difficulty, here's our purpose. In the midst of the trial, here's our purpose. In the midst of the persecution, here's our purpose. Living for his glory, how awesome is that? To the one who conquers, I give hidden manna, white stone, new name. And that's coming so soon. Amen, loved ones? Amen. Amen. Amen.